Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Incomparable, number 690, November 2023. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Anthony Johnston. Long-time listeners will know that quite a few Incomparable panellists are writers of one form or another. Jason Snell himself, you know, the head honcho, Big Cheese, is a renowned tech writer, of course, and several of us are specifically also fiction writers, uh, ranging from we have playwrights, we have radio writers, we have comics writers, games writers, and novelists. And one of those novelists is Dan Moran, who is with me today. Say hello, Dan. Hi, Anthony. I like that you said uh, comics and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I was like, I think those are all Anthony. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not the only person who's written comics on Pro- that. Probably, but uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway. Uh, anyway, so Dan, you have recently published a new novel. Uh, and so this is the latest in sort of occasional semi-series of episodes that we do on The Incomparable, talking to panelists about their work. Now... Uh, listeners out there, fans of Dan's writing, of whom I am one, naturally, and I know that there are many others amongst our listenership, uh, you will know that up until now, all of Dan's novels have taken place in his galactic Cold War universe, a sci-fi setting. But this latest book that we're here to talk about today is something new. So, Dan, take it away and tell us about All Souls Lost. Yeah, also is lost. I mean, I guess I determined at one point I only have one move when it comes to writing, uh, you know, fiction that I'm interested in, which is to take a couple different genres that I like and like smash them together until eventually <laughs> it works. So, like for the Galactic Cold War, that was I loved uh, Cold War spy fiction and I loved sci-fi, and so I wanted to combine those. In this case, with Also is Lost, I have I'm a big fan of uh, like hard-boiled slash noir detective novels. Um, as well as enjoying sort of your supernatural slash urban fantasy setting, which is to say stuff set in our world, but where our world has some of these supernatural elements, ghosts, demons, that kind of thing. Um, And so I decided I wanted to tell a story that was a little more grounded in in our world and had this protagonist who is kind of your your template of your hard-boiled detective, but he's a specifically a spiritual consultant. and then for good measure, because this is, you know, my bread and butter, I decided there's a little bit of techno thriller thrown in there as well. Uh, there's a large tech company and some possibly shady goings on there. So I, I wanted to like mix all these things up and play with all those different elements and see if they could combine to make something unique and hopefully interesting. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's where we ended up with that. And I've been working on it for a long time, and I'm, I'm glad to finally have it out there for everybody to read and enjoy. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I've read it, obviously. Uh, It is certainly unique in some respects, and in others you are very much sort of, you know, leaning into certain tropes, like you mentioned, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of hard-boiled, pulpy, noir-ish fiction. And certainly, you know, the first few chapters, you read the book, and it is all very much in that style. And if you're into that, you know, that's going to draw people in because it's like, oh, okay, pulpy detective thing. But then you very quickly throw curveballs with 
talk about ghosts and demonic possessions and you know all manner of stuff as well as a murder mystery obviously so you said you've been working on this for a while uh give us the background on that because i know this has when you say a while you're not kidding are you no i think i started it i was i think the earliest record i found of it was june 2014 which is you know nine plus years ago now um that's before I, the first galactic yeah, cold war book was published exactly it? yeah i think i had even i haven't didn't even have an agent at that point oh wow. i think at some point i had written uh the first one or two of the galactic cold war books um but hadn't managed to so like i was in the process of revising them i had met an agent and he was helping me work on them but i hadn't officially been signed yet at that point and so I had some downtime at one point and I was like, you know, I, I want to do, I don't want this to be my only series. I want to be able to do other stuff too. And so I'm going to sort of stretch my legs and try my hand with something else. And so I started working on it. Um, and I wrote a bunch of it that, you know, ultimately it did not, I mean, resembled what we ended up with, but like it went through a lot of changes in that intervening time because I would work on it on and off when I wasn't working on other Galactic Cold War books. You know, I had some downtime in between installments or what have you. I would, you know, every once in a while pull this up and, and sort of bang away at it. And my original goal had been to write something kind of like, oh, I'll, I'll dash off this quick, like 80,000 word novel or so. I mean, for <laughs> comparison, most of the Galactic Cold War books are around 100,000, um, you know, give or take 5K or so. And so I was like, oh, this will be a little shorter. It'll be like a little more contained. It'll have this sort of murder mystery framework. And that lends itself to like a very tight story. Uh, and I think as all writers determine at some point or another, like writing something that is very short and, and, um, elegant in its construction, it can often be harder, right? Yeah. You know, the old saying is like, if I had had more time, I would have written less. Um, I felt that for sure here. Cause at various points, this, this ballooned to like 90 plus thousand. And my agent, when I later showed it to him, kept being like, I think you need to like trim this back and like focus it in. So it was a long process. I was also just laughing at the, the the quite understandable but nevertheless naivety of the the, the young writer thinking oh, I'll just dash this off just dash you know it I'll off. just dash this How book long could off. How it take? How, yeah, no problem. It's only eighty thousand words. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, again, as all writers know, there's no such thing. It just <laughs> unless unless you're one of those people. The, that very, very small select bunch of people who can dash off like a 50, 60,000 word novel, uh, you know, like in about two or three months, uh, which I know yeah. quite a few self-published authors do to get the churn going on Kindle Unlimited. But that's that really is a skill. Like not yeah, many people absolutely. can do that. And so, yeah, the idea of like, oh, I'll just dash this off in my... It'll be quick in my spare time. No I, li I, you know what? I, I, I live in hope, Anthony, that someday I will be able to do that. <laughs> oh man. Um, so how, I mean, yes, uh, just as an aside, I read some early parts of this yes. that you sent to me and I, I realized when I read the finished book that I don't think anything that I read is in there. I think everything <laughs> that you sent me to read was cut. It's funny because like at one point I know you sent me some comments on it and you're like, I like this part right here. And I was already like, I have to take that out because it does not fit in the story. Like, and I was like, I'm really sad that you like the part that I'm definitely taking out. And not because it was bad or anything. It's just like it was ancillary to the story I was trying to tell. And I was trying to tell something, as I said, that was kind of streamlined. And like if I had been doing this in a different fashion, uh, you know, or slightly different genre, I think maybe I could have put it in there. But part of me was like, well, you know, I'll leave it. I, you know, I assume you like me 
never really get rid of anything oh, that no. you cut. No, no, you no. Kinda, no. You put it in a folder somewhere and you're like, oh, I'll get back to that. Well, and also sometimes shift them over to future books. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, yeah, the, the, exactly. the passage that I, in particular that I'm thinking of, you could easily, uh, I would imagine, uh, put into, you know, make that the, a more central to a future book mm-hmm. in the series. Yeah. So, yeah, and that's what I do all the time. There's loads of stuff in my books that gets cut because it's it's a good passage, it's a good scene or whatever, but it just doesn't, it's not doesn't important enough. Yeah. You know, you, you've got to prioritize yep. these things. And so, yeah, I kind of take it out and go, okay, well, I'll hang on to that and maybe I'll be able to use it in a future book. Now that I've said that, of course, I'm actually trying to think if I've ever <laughs> Have you done ever used it? it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I'm not sure if I <laughs> we should We should start a file of lies writers tell themselves. That can go there with, I'll just dash this book off. Yeah, I'll just use that in the future. I'm sure no, it'll be great. What we should do is do an anthology of all those scenes. <laughs> That have been cut and saved and never used again. Oh, total, uh, that, that just sounds monstrous and bizarre. <laughs> it's a Frankensteinian sort of situation. Oh, I, do you know, now that I've put that idea in my own head, I might actually think seriously about that. That would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, dear. Um, so how how come, what I was actually going to, trying to get to before we went off on that tangent, what, how come uh, this wasn't published before... Or earlier, I should say. I mean, you know, I can yeah. understand that an agent is going to glom onto one book more than another. And the Galactic yeah. Cold War, the first book, the Caledonian Gambit was, you know, the one that an agent said, oh, yeah, I can sell that. Great. But why did it then take you so long to say, oh, actually, I'd like to do this as well and get around to publishing this book? Yeah, I mean, part of it is just, you know, this will get a bit into the the business weeds, which maybe people are interested in. But like, I had a backlog of some stuff. So I had the Caledonian Gambit sold. And then as people might recall from some of the previous discussions of that, the publisher of that book did not opt to pick up the sequel, which I had already written. And so we spent some time selling that. And when we sold that, that was sold as part of a two book deal. And that was why Aleph Extraction came out very closely on its heels. So it wasn't until the point where I had, I think, turned in Aleph that I had, like, I didn't have anything else under contract. And I was like, you know, I want to sit down and and work on this other book. And so, uh, you know, that was my first opportunity to really get back to it and see if I could finish the book. Because, you know, I I started writing it very early, but I I didn't finish the book for quite some time. I don't even remember now when it was, but it was many years later. Um, because I just got distracted with the books that were actually, you know, we were selling yep. <laughs> and like, I had to figure that all out, right? Like I was a first time author and then, you know, I had to figure out all the marketing and all that stuff. And it was a, you know, experience. But once I sort of had that under my belt and I was like, okay, I start to understand the industry a bit more. I wanted to branch out. Um, and then it was sort of, as again, as you will know, being having gone through this sort of thing, you know, the the publication process is a very, very long <laughs> road and uh, in the case of this book yeah uh, in the case of this book we went the route of trying to sell it to a traditional publisher as we had done with the the galactic cold war books and it this is just a process that took forever because we had places that like you know we had a lot of rejections a lot of people are like no we're, we're not interested and i had a lot of very kind rejections where people were like this is good i like it I don't, I just not sure how we can market or sell it. Um, And in fact, we got to the point of having, I think, three different cases where it got basically to the final like stage of 
you know, an editor liked it and was taking it to, uh, you know, a committee to try and say, like, get signed off on it. And that was sort of where it would die. Um, so it had gotten very close, including um, it almost had a uh, a big five publisher <laughs> deal at one point because like there was an editor at one of them who really liked it. But again, they just sort of were like, we like the book. We just we're not sure how to sell it because it is a weird mashup of things. And so after having gone through this for a couple of years, you know, we were on submission with that for a while. Um, my uh, my agent had pitched this idea of the the agency itself had an ebook program where he was trying to build up a little bit, which was to essentially publish things. A lot of cases, stuff where there's no uh, distribution rights for a specific market. So uh, actually, one of the other books published by the program, um, which I think may get discussed in the uh, future incomparable episode, is uh, uh, Aliette de Bodard's um, a couple of their books and. Um, they had done very well, but they had been published in the UK, but they didn't have US distribution. I know you've you've gone through that as well yeah. with some of your books. And so in some cases, they'll be like, well, we don't have US, you know, we can't sell it into the US um, because the UK rights are taken. Sometimes that's tricky in terms of like who wants the, the rights, etc. And so they're like, well, we'll publish an ebook in the US and then at least it'll be accessible for people in the US. Um, and sometimes uh, they would even do some print uh, versions, a small print run or something like that. And so my agent pitched me on this idea and I was like, well, you know, I'm a little wary of doing it because it seems like it seems like giving up in some it ways. It seems and like I an admission like, of defeat. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, I don't know if I want to go through that. But I got so frustrated with the process of trying to get it published that I was like, well, I'd rather people read it, honestly, than it just sits in a mm-hmm. drawer forever. That seems silly. And so we sort of embarked on this as a, uh, I, I think of it as a bit of an experiment because I have done some self-publishing of small stuff, short stories for the Galactic Cold War. And so I, you know, kind of seen how the inside of that worked. And this was sort of a hybrid between those two because they handled a lot of the, the details, but I was still very involved, much more involved than I probably would be in a traditional publishing setup. Um, so yeah, all of that just culminated to take like, you know, one thing on top of the other, you're waiting for these, you know, deals to come through or not come through and you kind of, nothing in publishing moves fast. So <laughs> it all combined to end up taking a super long time to actually get it out. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there's a lot there that I'd like to talk about. And the time flies thing aspect always, mm-hmm. as you say, mm-hmm. publishing takes so long. People who don't, who aren't involved in it don't realize how slow publishing moves even now and mm-hmm. you know it's different if you're uh working for a digital first publisher uh, or yeah. sometimes you know some publishers now have imprints that are ex- exclusively digital and those yeah. can work a little bit faster but not that much faster because the actual publishing like people think that what takes time is printing the book and it's really not that takes like a week yeah. That's nothing. Yeah. What takes time is everything before then, all the yeah. uh, editing, all the meetings with marketing, as you mentioned, yep. all of the publicity, uh, scheduling arrangements, all that kind of stuff, and actually selling a book up the chain before it even mm-hmm. gets through the editorial process. As you mentioned, it's very common for an editor to go, I love this book, but then they take it to marketing and marketing are like, we can't sell this. You know, yeah. or yeah, you need to tick all those boxes just to get even through the like through the, know, door, the first yeah. gauntlet there. Yeah, yeah, or or, or, or equally common is uh, the editor saying, "I love this book, but we already have a series that's actually yeah. pretty similar, and we don't want to dilute it." Totally understandable, mm-hmm. but so frustrating. <laughs> when I was selling the Bridget Sharp novels, the number of people who said, "I love this, but we already have a spy series with a female protagonist." Mm-hmm. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you couldn't have more than one. 
Nope. You can only have one. That's Appar- it's Highlander rules. Yeah, apparently not. Um, it reminds me, I'm, I'm the guy who always makes music industry analogies, and I'm going to make another one here. It reminds me of when you talk to bands who've been around a while, say, you know, you sort of uh, get an interview or a biography of a band who've been around like for 20 years, they will often say, where did the time go? Like it feels like mm-hmm. yesterday because you're on that cycle of you make a record, you go yeah. and tour the record, then you make the next record, then you tour that record. And before you know it, you've released seven albums and 15 yeah. years have passed. It's like, wow, yeah. what happened? And it can yeah, be the same with is. books. So yeah, I totally understand that by the time that you'd got three, four books into the Galactic Cold War series, you know, before you knew it, that oh my God, I've completely forgotten about this other book because you've just had no time to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. It is. A, it's a bit of a treadmill at times. And yeah. It's, you know, it has its upsides for sure. It has its fun sides. But like, yeah, you can sort of when you're head down and working on something, it can just zip away from you. It really can. But this book is and this is something else that you kind of uh, alluded to. This book is, I think, I mean, it is difficult to sell because you do mash up a bunch of genres and the subject matter as well is kind of, you know, a bit esoteric in places. But it is aimed very squarely at your fan base. That's the thing about it. This is very much a you book. I mean, talk about write what you know. And it's, uh, yeah, it is hard to sell unless you're somebody who already reads your work. And by that, I don't just mean the Galactic Cold War, but I mean your tech journalism as well. If you're somebody who reads both of those things and likes Dan Moran's writing, you're going to like this book because it sounds like you. It reads like one of your novels, but a lot of the subject matter is also you know stuff that you've uh that you cover in your tech writing or drawn from what you cover in your tech writing yeah so yeah difficult to market traditionally but (laughs) yeah as long as you've got access to your readers you can you can make them aware of it you'd hope that they would go oh yeah okay fortunately i do have access to my readers which is nice um yeah no but you're totally right and i thought going into this that like part of this was inspired by my love of there are books like even the urban fantasy supernatural detective subgenre, if you want to call it that, is I feel well populated. Like I've noticed that a bunch of the like people writing reviews or commenting on the the book and stuff like that compare it to, for example, the Dresden Files, which is probably the most it's the well-known. obvious comparison, isn't it? Yeah, right. And it's funny because uh, I have literally never read any of them. <laughs> <laughs> I, ever i just haven't i've saw i saw i think one episode of that really short-lived tv series that was based on it um but that I was it that. and but it's a it's a it is a trope it's become a trope and i mean I, the, the two series that i point to as ones that i'm a big fan of that inspired me to write this were um the rivers of london series by ben oh yeah, yeah. um and the uh, uh, Felix Castor series by Mike Carey, mm-hmm. um, which both sort of trod the same ground of like, there's like a little bit of the noir detective angle, or at least the the procedural like mystery angle and the supernatural mixed in and some humor as well, I think, especially in the the Rivers of London series. Yeah. Um, and and I think that, you know, there there is some ripe ground for that. And I've certainly seen TV shows over the years as well that play around with the like, they're a detective, but they investigate spooky stuff. So, you know, I, I don't think it's totally unheard of, but it is definitely a, a niche, right? Like, and that's that in and of itself, even if it's a good targeting space to say like, oh, this is a niche that exists. You know, it doesn't always guarantee that like somebody else is going to feel like, oh, that's a really good category we can sell it into. No, absolutely not. Yeah, the the Rivers of Ben Aronovich's series, The Rivers of London, is definitely the more procedural but humorous 
side of yeah. things and yeah. the, the Felix Castro is much more you know a bit more serious what, and a bit more noir dark, yeah. yeah but yeah. certainly yeah quite a bit darker and you do I mean combining heavy subjects if you like with shall I say flippant humor is <laughs> is kind of your trademark I mean you do that in oh good just I have a trademark every book. yeah <laughs> yeah and, well I mean yeah I don't know I I find very few things for me without any humor work right like that is a right. thing that for me when i read i it doesn't need to be a comedy but like you need to have a a little bit of a, a, a levity angle or at least some humor sprinkled throughout and i think you know stuff that's just very dour and very like serious all the time just doesn't tend to resonate with me and it's not the stuff i like to read or write so um, that's one of my feelings on that is just, I, I, I feel like there always needs to be some humor in there, but, um, it is tricky to, to sort of talk about stuff that is a little bit darker without, you know, <laughs> and not totally pull the rug out from under yourself. Yeah, very much, very much. I've just realized that we've got this far in and you haven't actually given us a sort of blurb for what the book <laughs> is, you know, what the story is. So oh, do you yeah. want to do that before every, I get on to yeah, asking you other stuff? <laughs> every author loves doing the elevator pitch, right? Yeah, go on. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so the, the story is about Mike Lucifer, who is a spiritual consultant. He left Boston, which was his, uh, where he was living, um, after an unfortunate event that resulted in the death of his partner. Uh, and he sort of spent the couple years on a beach drinking heavily. Uh, but he runs out of money. He has to go home. And when he gets there, he finds himself embroiled in this case as a young woman comes to him and says her boyfriend has been possessed by a demon. And his investigations lead him to a tech company where something suspiciously spooky is going on. And there is a, effectively a murder mystery at the center of it as yes. well. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Without wanting I, to get into spoiler territory, uh, I will we'll get into spoilers later. But that's another, um, and that's partly why I suddenly thought, oh, hang on, we haven't done the the elevator pitch because I wanted to ask about things like you have combined this murder mystery aspect with all of these other genres as well, um, uh -huh. and. I just wondered if, because again, in the excerpt that I read that you sent me, I don't think that was really part of it at all. So did that, because that is effectively another, a third genre that you're kind of shoving in there. Um, was that always part of the plan or did that come later in the development of the story? I think there needed to be a catalyst was the issue. And I, I think it was maybe in there, but not as prominent in some of the earlier drafts like there right. is a, there is somewhat of a difference between a dead body shows up and there's a murder mystery right like yeah there one necessitates the other but the other it's not a reciprocal thing um <laughs> and you know as well as i do because you have written some excellent mysteries that like what's nice about a murder mystery is it does have a very specific framework right for, for how the plot is laid out and that is helpful sometimes when you need a bit of a scaffolding to hang different things on is like well you have immediately have a driving incident, right? There's a dead body. It needs to be investigated. You want to find out who did it. And that can help you sort of figure out like, well, what is the next step for my protagonist to take if he is somebody who is investigating this murder? Um, and I, I think that is useful. And I, I will say kind of like my opinion on humor. I think most of uh, a lot of books that I enjoy, as well as the books I write, 
I think always have to have some mystery angle in them. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be a crime or a murder mystery, but there needs to be stuff that is withheld from the reader that your protagonist is trying to figure out because I think that is what drives a lot of tension and conflict in stories. Um, and so certainly the murder mystery part of this, I think, you know, it combines a lot with the detective noir angle, right? Like those two things I think have a lot in common. Uh, they share a lot of DNA. They're not, you know, exactly the same, but like there's a lot of back and forth between them. And so for me, that helped solidify part of the the narrative, the plot was having this moment where it's like, well, what is the problem that needs to be solved here? And a dead body is always a good it's problem, always a problem to have. <laughs> yeah, it's always a good problem to have if you're writing mystery novels. Not a great problem to have if you're living your life. <laughs> As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So one of the things I did want to ask about your protagonist was why... So he's uh, he's a magician literally a magician uh you know not a stage magician but you know deals in magic and the occult and that sort of thing and has not supernatural powers but the ability to manipulate the supernatural i suppose is probably a better way of describing it and there's a line uh which did make me laugh where you have him thinking uh, he's confronted with a computer and he he's disgusted by it and he just thinks to himself magic makes sense technology who knows what goes on inside those little boxes uh which of course is a complete reversal of you know how it actually should be and i just i thought that was a very interesting choice to make the protagonist a complete luddite especially when you are not when you are so obviously somebody who is you know very well versed in technology who writes about it for a living um and yet you decided to, and you have a side, he has a sidekick effectively who, you know, there's another character who is very tech savvy, but the main guy isn't. And that is kind of a trope that is kind of traditional, you know, the magic guy who doesn't trust technology. And I wondered if, uh, you considered, you know, sort of having him span both worlds, but then decided not to. And, you know, what drove that decision? Well, I think, you know, for me, the protagonist, you know, always, Mike always came across to me as a guy who is old school. Uh, I think that's what it comes down to. And I wanted to poke fun at that a little bit without being dismissive or mocking of it. Um, Because I think there is a tendency, especially among people who are tech savvy, to look down on people who are not. Um, And... I don't, you know, there's a little bit of that gentle ribbing that happens from his more tech-savvy companion about it. But at the same time, he's a guy who's managed to get pretty far in life without having to really deal in technology too much. Um, And I liked the idea of basically being able to portray that from the other side as being some, like, you know, speaking as somebody who spends a lot of time with technology uh, yeah, I don't know. I didn't want to get down the reads. It's hard to write about technology too, I think is the other part of it. Like 
it yep. can be boring. <laughs> oh, believe me, I know that. <laughs> yeah, you know that for sure. And I, I think you've done your, 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 you know, the Bridgie Sharp books. I think you do an excellent job of making it accessible without making it like people's eyes glaze over because you're like going into like weird details about esoteric stuff. But honestly, what is magic if not also esoteric details? Like they have a lot in common. Really, mm. I think is part of it. But I liked having the interplay between two characters, one of whom knows a lot about magic and nothing about technology, and the other one who's basically the opposite. Um, I think it provides. Some interesting tension as to points where those two things are coincident and when they are more divergent um, because you know they can each kind of impart some information to the other but they can each also like I said there adds a degree of playful you know humor to them making fun of the other one for not understanding what's going on and I think also having a character who was going to end up investigating stuff that was specifically related to a technology company it was good to have a scenario where he seems a little bit out of his depth right. uh, a little you know the water's over his head a bit because he doesn't really understand all the jargon and stuff and that that provides a good entry point for having another character who you know who does have that information it is kind of a buddy cop sort of relationship actually throw another genre in there yeah right (laughs) i mean they're not cops obviously but the 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 relationship of the banter between them as you say is very much in that they are sort of mocking one another at times uh, because they have these different expertise but they come to realize of course that they need both in order to work together to get to the bottom of the problem yeah which is yeah uh, i think it's fun it adds a little bit i mean it's the same way with you know, I think one thing that I think sets apart some of the more hard-boiled detective, you know, and noir, noir detective stuff from maybe your classical mystery stories is I do think the classical mystery stories often tend to have that protagonist sidekick, right? Like your Holmes and Watson or mm-hmm. your, you know, uh, Poirot and Captain Hastings or whatever. Like they have that dynamic of there's the person who's the brilliant detective and then the sidekick who kind of you know gets everything done <laughs> um <laughs> and noir stuff doesn't have that as much i think your your protagonists tend to be much more loners yeah uh and and i think introducing something especially in the case of this story where you have the background that that you know mike lucifer's partner has died and he feels guilty and responsible about that and he's confronted with having to work with someone else and he is obviously somewhat traumatized from that and is forced to be in a position where he is, you know, opening himself up a little bit, making himself vulnerable by having a friendship with somebody else uh, in, in working together. It provides some, some internal conflict and tension for him as well. Yeah. Well, and I think the other, so, so the other thing about the noir protagonists, you say they are often lone wolves and they're always out of their depth which Mike, mm-hmm. as you said, is when it <laughs> comes to technology, but also this particular story, trying not to get into spoiler territory, but this particular story couldn't work unless he could understand or could learn to understand it. You know, he couldn't be forever out of his depth uh, because then, mm-hmm. yeah, the, this particular story that you've got couldn't work. So you needed to have somebody who understands that world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you you can't just go in totally blithely about it because it was yeah you would end up with some some serious roadblocks there. Yeah, <laughs> I'm kind of imagining in my mind yeah the sort of how you'd work around that as a writer and it just with this but you'd have to write a completely different plot. It wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so again, not getting into spoiler territory, but uh, 
I'm sure people will want to know, especially if they have already read it, but even if they haven't, are there going to be more in this series? Because it feels it feels like it could be a standalone, but obviously, you know, uh, this is the modern world and people generally want series. So do you have future plans for Mike Lucifer? I, you know, it's tricky. I, I, when we were trying to sell it as a traditional book, I did write up like a, you know, sort of a pitch for a couple other books, like what could sort of very broad, right? Like, you know, here's a paragraph about what another book might entail. Um, so the idea is certainly there. And, and, you know, again, as you well know, the mystery genre is well suited to, you know, series because you can have these different cases recur and, and stuff like that. Um, so I, I will certainly say it's not off the table. I don't really know when or, you know, how. I don't know if that's the word I wanted. Where? <laughs> I, don't, uh, I don't really know what the future holds here. Um, I think part of it is I want to see how this book does. Is that, you know, we talked about it. it has a very different publishing model. Sure. So one of the challenges with it is that unlike in a traditional publishing contract, you get paid up front there, right? So you usually get an advance, not all the time, but a lot of time you get an advance and that money is sort of like, here's some money to like tide you over basically. Um, and so you, you know, you get that before the book is written and that allows you to have at least some degree of financial sort of like, okay, you know, I've, at least I got some money. I can pay some bills with this. Um, whereas in the model that I'm, you know, we've done with this, um, you know, I essentially wrote this and then we publish it and it's all depending on how well it sells. Um, so it's so exactly so it's it's trickier because it's like well i've got all a i've got to carve out time for books that i already have under contract which i do have a couple of and have been paid for (laughs) so i need to write those first uh you know and then i can think about how is this done and and does it seem like there's an audience for another one because i like the idea a lot i also have to admit you know there's a certain degree of trepidation involved, right? It took me nine years to get this last one out. I'd ideally like to do the next one in somewhat less time. <laughs> and, you know, I spent a lot of time on it and I worked like, uh, I think there's always a little bit of trepidation about stepping back into something, especially like this, that has such a strong voice to it. Take some time to get your head back into that space. Um, and I always worry a little bit about the, uh, you know, not exactly the sophomore slump, but right, like, but the idea of coming back to something and being like, oh, is this going to be as good as the first one? Like, is am I going to hit all those nails? Because like, I don't want to just rewrite the first one. I've got, I want to take it in a little bit of a different direction. Uh, but you want to keep what made the first one really work. So yeah. all of those things are things I'm juggling when I think about do I want to do a second one? But I like these characters so much that I feel like I would be surprised if I did not come back to it at some point. I just am not sure when that will be. Obviously, the more people buy it and the more people talk about it and <laughs> the, the more, more people jumps. love it, it all helps. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, throw that out there. Yeah. I mean, just speaking generally, I was talking to somebody uh, not that long ago about, yeah, the as you, you called it, the sophomore slump. The second book in anything, and it's not just so like traditionally people call it, you know, the again, music analogy, the difficult second album. Um, Mm. But that is that is within a sort of single body of work. And I must admit that I assumed because, yeah, the second Brigitte Sharp book was hard. That was really, really difficult to write. Um, And then the third book was easier. And I thought, oh, okay, yeah. I'm brilliant. I'm over that slump now. But then when I came to write the second Dog Sitter Detective book, that was really hard as well. And yeah. I was like, oh no, yeah. it's not just my second book. It's the second book in any series. And it's tough. 
it's oh, tough. I remember the context now. We were talking about seasons of TV. Yeah. And the second yeah. season of a TV show can often suffer from the same problem. Because right, I- you have a really great idea and you spent a long time honing it and you've got all this, yep. like you've spent so much time working. And then often, like often as well, you have much less time before yes. the second one, right? Yes. And so it's like, all right, that was great. Turn around and like do another one in like a year or something. And you're like, uh... <laughs> Yeah, well, that, that's the that. that's the common thing with novels. You know, the the truism there is that you you spend your entire life writing your first novel, and then you've got eight months to write your second. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yep. like no it, wonder it is it's a, difficult. It is, yeah, exactly. And I think there's like you said, there's there's always a bit of a challenge with that second book. I think I managed to skip it in some ways with the the Cold Galactic Cold War series because I had written the second book before the first one was even published. So there was no expectation, like, no pressure. Yeah, exactly. So, but that is a weird and kind of random scenario. So I don't think that necessarily holds true in every case. But yeah, it is it is tricky in a book like this, especially because people also compare it to like the first book, and you know you want to make sure that you're delivering on what people liked, but also not just being like, I'm going to rewrite the first book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and people have to understand a lot of that pressure that we're talking about is pressure that we put on ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily pressure from publishers or editors or whatever. It's from us. It's from within. Because yeah. yeah, as you say, we're very aware that we want, you know, well, we've got to keep all the things that were good that people liked about the first yeah. book, but we don't want to just rewrite the first book. And then if we introduce new stuff, oh no, that means some of the other stuff has to go and oh, it gets very yeah. stressful. <laughs> oh, I don't like that this new thing got put in. Yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> oh. But I hope there will be many more in this series. Thank you. Partly because I just wish you every success, but also because I did enjoy the book. Um, and we'll talk about why in a moment, because I think now is a good time to sound the spoiler horn. So before we do, if you haven't read the book yet, uh don't listen past this don't listen past the spoiler horn unless you are one of those people for whom spoilers just simply do not spoil (laughs) anything um but i I really would say don't instead go out buy the book give it a read then come back and listen to the the last 10 minutes or so of this if you have read the book obviously stick around and uh yeah we'll talk about stuff that really i I think it's better people go in not knowing going cold but yeah do go out buy the book it's called all souls lost you can buy it on uh, all sort of e-platforms and there is a print edition i believe isn't there there's a print version available on amazon exclusively but i believe basically any place you can buy amazon books i think any country where you can buy stuff from amazon they'll send you because it's print on demand essentially right um and there will be an audiobook um it oh. is coming uh i it's i think available for pre-order on some platforms um right now but like it should be on all the platforms eventually I think it is currently targeted for November, um, late November, but I that is subject to change. There's a whole lot of boring <laughs> contract reasons for that, um, but yeah, it, it is coming. Well, uh, so people who want to be find out when the audiobook's coming should follow you on social media. Your handle is normally dmoran. Is it that on? I know that's Twitter. Yep. Is it the same on things like Mastodon and what have you? Yeah, I'm Mastodon. I'm Dmorin at Zeppelin.flights, which is the incomparable server. I'm on Blue Sky. I think I'm at Dmorin.com on Blue Sky because this yeah. guy's weird. Just search. Uh, you know. Yeah, search for me. My website is Dmorin.com. You can find all my stuff there and all the info will be there too. The website was the next one I was going to mention. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, so as soon as you have a date for the audiobook, I assume you'll oh, be yeah, announcing it'll be, it. It'll be up there. In yeah. all of those places. But yes, do go out and buy it. It's a, it's a great book. So now let's sound off the spoiler horn. <laughs> 
So, spoiler territory. As I said before, they say write what you know, but I was not expecting <laughs> that halfway through this book, and I, I, I will, I will say to you, the first and second halves of this book to me feel quite different. Yeah, uh, and I don't know if that's conscious or deliberate. The first half feels much more pulpy, much more yeah. sort of tropey noir, and then the second half suddenly. Well, not quite turns on a dime, but suddenly becomes Tim Cook has resurrected Steve Jobs' ghost to save Apple, <laughs> essentially, you know, with, but with the serial numbers filed off. Uh, which sure, yeah. yeah. Completely took me by surprise, but I, I will say I enjoyed the second half more than the first. I thought, I don't know, I just found it more engaging. I mean, and that's a good thing. Hell, if you're going to do, if one half is going to be better than the other, it's better to have, <laughs> have that be second the second one, half, yeah. you know. Um yeah, what I mean, you've talked about your influences and stuff, but that it's almost like a change in style because the humor becomes a little less sardonic. I think in the mm -hmm. second half as well, there's less humor in it. Uh, and yeah, it just I won't say it feels like a different book, but it definitely feels like there is a shift around the halfway point. Were you conscious of that? Was it deliberate or was that just a case of how it turned out because that's how the plot went? You know, I think honestly. I'd have to look back at like the actual pro like uh, in between sort of states. But I think probably part of that is, as I mentioned, this book took a long time to write. And I think probably the first half was written much earlier, like and it's been refined, right? Like I went sure. back and I worked through a bunch of the first half, but I think it bears a lot more of the hallmarks of me writing, you know, 2015 era as opposed to 2019 or something when I had a couple books under my belt. So I think that's part of it is I knew a little bit more, I was a little more confident in my style, a little more confident in things like plotting and how to kind of move everything forward. And so I think it it meanders a little less in the back half because I definitely have that moment also where things sort of kick off and like it's kind of a, it's like a roller coaster, right? Like you hit that top point and it's like downhill and you don't really yeah. stop. Um, but so I... I wouldn't say I'm necessarily cognizant or or thought of it in that way. I think it's just a you know bearing sort of the marks of my evolution as a writer and just like the the places I was I was when I started working on each of those parts of it. So I you know maybe just sort of a natural progression in terms of it. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's hard to point to say exactly like oh yeah, I decided to definitely make that second half more interesting. But like all these things are weird <laughs> and they combine. You end up with this weird melange like because. I'm not even sure if the original idea of this story, again, lost to the mists of time in my failing memory, but like, I don't even remember if the, the ghost of the, you know, Steve Jobs was originally intended for this story, or at some point I had like started working on the story and then that occurred to me as a separate idea. I was like, oh, that kind of works in here. Right. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, it was <laughs> so oh, well, hard to tell after a decade. I mean, that happens all the time. You know, I'm writing the third dog sitter detective book at the moment and i've already written fifteen thousand words and literally this morning as i was writing i had an idea that would you know require a sort of bit of shift in how things are done and the plot and what yeah. have you as it came to me but that's uh, that to me is a perfectly normal part of writing um mm -hmm. I, i'm surprised that it wasn't when you had the idea for the infinity shaped headquarters <laughs> building because that to me felt like I, I was reading that and thinking oh surely that was dan thought of that and went right that's it everything else falls into place <laughs> you know that part of it was pretty significant like i think they were still building apple park when i came up with that idea like right. it hadn't opened yet i certainly hadn't been there which i now have um 
but I loved the idea, and I was like, well, I can't just make it a circle. I like what what would be interesting. I was like, oh yeah, the infinity. I like that's a cool cool idea. But yeah, I, well, especially when the old Apple headquarters is called Infinite Loop. Infinite Loop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think there's definitely a moment where I mean, you've experienced this too, I'm sure, where like when you have that idea that unlocks like a bunch more of like like a domino almost you're like yeah. oh what if this is about this oh but then this could be this and this could be this and this could be this and you're like oh this is all everything's falling into place or whatever like not to suggest that it's easy but like you have that cascade of ideas and then all of a sudden it opens up like this new vein and you're like oh yeah like there is there is something here there is some stuff i can work with yeah it's exciting those are the moments that you live for as an author, yes. really. That, they're that's... few and far between, but they're right. great when they happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like inspiration. Doesn't happen very often, but when it does, yep. it's uh, you, there's really nothing like it. Um, which also leads to, and I wanted to put this behind the spoiler horn, my other favorite quote from the book, which is, any sufficiently large corporation is indistinguishable from organized crime. And then you mis- you know, mistakenly or jokingly uh, misattribute it to Arthur C. Clarke. Um but yeah, I, I just thought that was such a great, it's so cynical. It's so incredibly cynical, but it is very funny. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. It was, I wasn't even like attempting to make a statement with that or anything. I just like the more I thought about it, the more it seemed like, well, you know, that <laughs> seems accurate in some ways when you think about it. Uh, I have to point to one of my influences there also, which is uh, I, every book. I write, I feel like I always steal something from the movie Sneakers, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> and uh, that is from the Ben Kingsley bit when he talks about working for uh, the mob. Uh, and Robert Redford says, organized crime. And Ben Kingsley says, don't kid yourself. They're not that organized. <laughs> <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. I have seen that movie, but it was a long time ago. But it does feel, even though it is a throwaway line in the book, it does kind of feel like a central part of the, the thesis if you like, and not to suggest that the book is a polemic or uh, didactic in any way. But, you know, if it has a sort of a a central theme, a point, a heart, that is definitely part of it. Um, So, yeah, I just thought it was a great line. Yeah, yeah, I I think that's part of the the two, the, again, part of the the vocabulary of the genre, right? Like, when you have your lone wolf noir protagonist going up against big odds, you want something that seems huge. And a lot of times you could have the government or whatever, or the organized crime or whatever like that. But it has to be correct. In our modern world, yeah, corporations are gigantic. And there's no bigger like threat in some ways than like, you know, a billionaire who decides he knows the right way to do everything. Well, as we've seen, you know, in the real world over the- In any number of times. Right. In recent years, you know, sufficiently large companies and or- sufficiently rich individuals kind of wield mm-hmm. more power than some nations yeah which is uh, a genuinely scary thought um but i did think the the climax as i say i really enjoyed the second half of the book i thought the climax was great uh it kind of had a bit of clive barkerish feel to mm. it uh you know which i mean is a great compliment um <laughs> Yeah, it was. Uh, there was something about it that just kind of it all fell together very nicely for me. I thought, and especially the um, uh, misdirect you do when they come out of the psychic world where they meet, you know, the Steve Jobs uh, analogy where they meet his ghost, and then they come back out, and you kind of misdirect that Jenner is actually still in there, effectively, mm-hmm. and is sort of psychically holding back this dark force. I thought that was very well handled. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, it's it's interesting sometimes when you look at a book and that you've written and, and find some stuff that does hold together very well versus times when you can see 
sometimes you can see the all the work you've done behind the scenes, right, to prop stuff into place. But there was something about the progression of the back half of this book, I think, that unfolds very organically for me. Um, in that everything did just seem to slot into place, at least in terms of, you know, not ease of writing necessarily, but like it flowed and it made sense. And when I go back and I reread it, it's like it follows very nicely. And like that doesn't always happen. No. A lot of time <laughs> it is trickier to, do, to to have a plot that really sort of hums along and, and, and manages to hold together in a way that really makes sense. But I think I'm very pleased with this one because I think it does and I think it manages to still be surprising. Uh, one of my favorite notes was uh, in the beta read process, actually even earlier on in this, I had somebody reading it and um, uh, they got to the middle of the book. It's almost the dead center middle of the book, uh, which is when Richie reappears. Yep. And she, like her comment was like, oh my God, I did not see this coming. Holy crap, right? Like, And I thought like that was very pleasing for a moment to have somebody have that reaction because it's like, well, I laid just enough breadcrumbs that this wasn't like, it's not an out of left field surprise, right? Like, cause you can yeah, he's been mentioned several like, times up until that point. Right. Yeah. But you don't think about it because it's about something that has happened in his, in Mike's past. And it feels like, well, we're talking about the impact that's had on him as a person. Which is another part of the genre. It's an expected right, part of the exactly. genre, isn't it? Like, you know, the lone right. wolf haunted by his past. Well, but mistakes but his past in his is past. Very much the present. And I yeah. thought that was kind of fun to do of having this like problem he thought he had put behind beside him behind himself. He has to suddenly confront in the realest possible terms. Yeah. <laughs> Literally confront. Yeah. 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 No, I had the same reaction. It completely caught me by surprise. Uh but as you say in that delightful way where you're like, oh, okay, actually, maybe it shouldn't have caught me by surprise because the clues were that, well, not the clues, but as you say, the breadcrumbs were there suggesting that Richie would have some kind of large, or not that Richie would have a large part to play, but that these flashbacks were more important than just mm -hmm. his tortured past. Uh, but yeah. still, yeah, I, I never would have, if you'd actually asked me, I probably, you know, out of a hundred guesses, I probably wouldn't have uh, predicted that that would happen. But that brings me to another thing that I wanted to, probably the final thing that I wanted to leave behind the spoiler wall, as it were, which is talking about the future. So mm. much of this story was, and this is obviously very, very common in first books uh, in any series, but so much of this particular story and this plot is focused on Mike's Lucifer's past and that event with Richie. And just, it's, it's all very, very specific to his backstory up until this point so how do you then move forward if you do a sequel mm. how do you make it as interesting when you no yeah. longer have those elements to call upon it's a great question if you if you figure it out let me know oh I, uh, believe yeah. me if i knew i'd bottle it and sell it <laughs> <laughs> well i think part of it for me is there's still some stuff that i try to lay out in a couple points that indicate we don't know everything about Mike's past. We know this big event, but there stuff that is hinted at that is more complex and also going on there that you know indicates maybe he's got even more history that we haven't found out. In my head, he's a little bit, you know, he's certainly a little bit John Constantine-ish. Um, you know, has that element going for him of being sort of the uh um you know investigator, paranormal investigator, supernatural investigator slash mm -hmm. magician. Um, but with a tortured past, but there's like, he's got some history with some of these demons potentially. And I think that comes into play. Um, 
I think, yeah, it is tricky. I don't know. Like, that is the one thing that I, I do worry about, like, you know, looking at doing a sequel is I think that that framework of having this thing from his past that he's forced to confront and his dead partner who's suddenly alive and he has to deal with, you know, you can't pull that trick a second time. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And that is that is a big challenge for me going forward. And I think, you know, in some ways, I think I would take a sharper left turn. Like, you know, uh, I'm not sure that how much like technology specifically would be a part of everything going forward. Like, I'm sure it would be an aspect, but I can't, I again, don't really want to go back to the well of dealing with like a, you know, a big tech company. Cause I kind of feel like I've told that story. Um, but I have some other ideas. Um, I will say this will be my, my only little breadcrumb drop. I, I definitely want to spend some time. If there was a second book, it would probably involve Something about the, <laughs> this is going to sound a little weird, but I'm going to go with it, the um, Boston subway system. Um, <laughs> okay. Done some research on that, and I've done some reading about it, and it's the oldest subway system in the United States. Um, and so, I don't know, it, it has kind of an almost um, eerie, ethereal vibe to it at times that I think could be an interesting ground for exploring. Um, so that would be a bit of a, a shift, but I think there's something there. I think for me, the the interesting part of telling a story that's sort of in that quote unquote urban fantasy genre is the urban part in the sense of this is set in a very specific place mm -hmm. and it's all the interesting stuff you can do with that city, that setting as part of the fabric of the story is I think the interplay that interests me the most is having him interact with these different things from this real place and weaving those in with the stuff that's more fantastical. Yeah, we actually probably should have talked about this before the spoiler horn, but yeah, you do. I mean, it's very clear that you know this area and that you know this city. Um, that comes across very, very much in the text. Yeah, and and obviously Boston's a city with a ton of history in the U.S. You know, I I remember being tempted trying to figure out where am I going to set this? Do I set it in a fictional city? Do I set it in another city? Like obviously mentioning I was a big fan of the um, you know Rivers of London and the Felix Castor series. Both of them are set in London. That provides a different, a very specific vibe, but I have not spent that much time there, so I didn't want to do that. Um, and certainly, you know, obviously I think New York is often a go-to, but I don't, I don't really, I'm not a really big fan of New York. I haven't spent a ton <laughs> of time in New York and it has a very different feel to it. And a very like, different vibe, yeah. Yeah, like I want, again, I did want to really play around with this place that I know well and weaving that in with the fantastical, I think, was a, a part of the fun. Speaking of the subway idea, uh, you you may not even know this. My very first book, like my first published fiction, uh, was a, a horror novella all centered around the London underground system. Because mm. obviously that is the oldest underground system in the world. Yes. Uh, yeah. And London itself is a 2,000-year-old city. So, right. uh, yeah. Or 2,000-year-old settlement, I should say. So, uh, yeah. And that won an award. So, you know, go for it. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. All right. Well, start check. There we go. I'll just, uh, I'll crib heavily. Uh, the one thing I will say that I want to see, I mean, you talked about whether you want to bring technology back in a big way. I think it has to be there because of Jenna's character. I know that obviously she's been revealed yeah. to be psychic, but still she might feel a bit like a fifth wheel if there isn't some, you know, uh, yeah. element of technology there that she can specialize in. But the other thing that I really want to see and find out more about is Irma, the office ghost. <laughs> she was a surprising hit uh one of my readers um 
actually a, a, a incomparable listener who also works at my agency um read an early version and was like she, he wanted more about her so i added a few more details and sort of a very late draft about their relationship and i don't know those are one of the things that's always tricky is i want to give more information mm. without like there is some fun in keeping it a little bit vague right. and like there's a reason i don't have like a magic system i think but for me i like stuff that's a little more unstructured because it lends an air of miss an air of mystery to it to a certain degree and like if you explain something too much you run the risk of taking that away so it's a very fine line to walk but yeah i agree like she's a critical part of this whole story and so having her continue to be a part of it obviously would be uh you know definitely a, a must must do it's the will they won't they dilemma you know, readers, yes, viewers right. of a TV show, whatever, you know, will tell you forever that they want this. But then once you actually give it to them, that's it. You're spent. Like, you know, you've yeah, kind right. of, yeah. you've shot Plus your load. Plus you run the risk were. of them being like, oh, not like that, though. Oh, that too. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, I wanted that, but not <laughs> yeah. that, not the way you did it. And it's yeah. like, well, there's only one way. I can only do it once. <laughs> yeah. But seriously, more armor. Uh, I think that's about it. I don't have anything more to say. Is there anything that you want to tell people about the book that we haven't talked about? I'm really pleased with it. Honestly, I think this is just the thing. This is a, a rare scenario. Like, I feel like a lot of times when we're as writers, we put stuff out and then we look back at it and we're like, yeah, if I could, if I could change some stuff now, mm. I'd maybe do this differently or I maybe do that differently. I won't say this book is totally devoid of that, but I had to read this book a lot because of all the different passes it went through and all the time I spent on it. And usually when you get to a point where like you've gone through like four different passes, edit passes, copy edits, proofreading, all that stuff, you get sick of something, right? Even if you love it, you're oh, like, yeah. oh God, yeah. I've read this book so many times. And for some reason, this is the only book I've ever read where every time I reread it, I'm like, man, this is a pretty good book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I genuinely enjoyed it every time I read it. And I was like, I found that so weird as, a, as the person who wrote it to be saying that because I don't want to feel like I'm tooting my own horn. I will, but I will tell you, I have read all of my books multiple times and I don't always feel like that. So I really love this story. I really enjoyed writing it. If no other book comes from this, I will still feel very satisfied with having put this story out there. And I hope that some people out there get at least that much enjoyment from it. It is very odd, isn't it, when you come back to something, especially if you haven't read it for a while, and you read a passage, you're like, that's really good. Did I Did that's I have not, no memory of writing that? Yeah, that's not bad. Yeah. That's This person is, maybe yeah. they got something. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, for me, books disappear from my memory the moment that they oh, go yeah. to print as well. 100%. So yeah, I, I, you're I, on to the next thing. Yeah, I remember mm -hmm. them, like, right now, because I've just been uh, proofreading the galleys and stuff, the second Dog Sitter Detective book, I feel like I could recite it to you word by word sure uh but the moment that it actually goes off to print i will forget everything in it <laughs> you got you got to move on to the next book and you got to load that stuff out of ram and you yeah. know move, yeah keep going so there you go the technology analogies again <laughs> <laughs> all right well this has been a lot of fun uh i will once again urge listeners if you've been listening past the spoiler horn uh to go out and buy the book all souls lost it is available on all your favorite platforms and audiobook coming soon apparently and it is really good and yes the more of you that go out and buy it the more chance there is of getting another book in the same series in the meantime thank you all for listening uh i've been anthony johnston dan moran is the author and uh, we'll see you next time back here on the incomparable <laughs>